encourage you to keep your Bibles open there at uh, Acts chapter 16, so you can follow as I speak to make sure that I say the, the correct thing and don't deviate from what is written. Before we start, let me pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my lips, the meditations of our hearts and minds, be always acceptable in your sight. Amen. In a... Uh, who remembers 1957? Yeah. In a 1957 movie, Elvis Presley made prison look like a rip-roaring stage show when he sang a song called... Jail oh, look, a lot of you are here. Jailhouse Rock. Now, a movie is pure fiction, but the truth of the matter is Jesus made another jailhouse rock long before Elvis did, and it wasn't a stage production. It was a real-life event at an earthquake, a jailbreak, and a midnight confession of faith. So if you're feeling imprisoned by life's problems and challenges, listen carefully to how Jesus put a song in the Apostle Paul's heart and a spring into a jailer's step because Jesus wants to do the same for you and me no matter what our circumstances. Well, as Rick said earlier, today we are uh, continuing with our series in the book of Acts of the Apostles with the theme being the unstoppable gospel. You'll no doubt remember that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before he's taken into heaven, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts charts the spread of the gospel from a small group of believers in Jerusalem through to Judea, Samaria. And when we open the book of Acts in chapter 16, we find that the gospel message has moved across the Aegean Sea from Asia into Europe and lands in a place called Philippi in Macedonia. Communicating and accepting the gospel within communities has not been a smooth operation thus far. Wherever it's preached, it invariably challenges deeply held beliefs and customs, causes divisions in communities, instability with institutions, and rifts in families. Sometimes the preaching of the gospel leads to civil unrest and riot. Those people who preach the good news are often ridiculed ostracised and as we've heard on the video persecuted run out of town beaten up arrested jailed and at worst put to death you'd think that this with this degree of opposition those people who preach the gospel would give up and go home but as we read this is far from the case although all these seemingly insurmountable obstacles through that, God's message of hope for the world keeps going forward, spoken by faithful messengers. The good news of the saving grace of God 
has delivered through his that he has delivered through his son is a message that all people need to hear. Those early pioneers of the faith are totally and utterly committed to telling others of God's redeeming grace. They continue to preach through the adversity, not by their own strength, for they are weak, but through the power of God. Philippi was an important outpost of the Roman Empire, sat on the eastern edge of Europe on a highway called the Ignatian Way. It was a major road link between Asia and Italy. Many travellers passed through Philippi on their way to Rome from the east. It was known for its gold mines and abundant springs of fresh water and it served as a military outpost. But most importantly, from our point of view, it was the site of the first Christian church on European soil. The good news of the gospel, wherever it is preached, will get a reaction. The gospel message was first preached in Philippi to a small group of women who had gathered by the river to worship. Here, an Asian businesswoman named Lydia opened her heart to the gospel and along with her household, they were baptised into the faith. We pick up Luke's account still in Philippi where we find Paul, Silas, Luke and others on their way to the place of prayer, probably the same river that was mentioned earlier in verse 13. And what seems like a routine activity takes an unexpected turn of events. They were met along the way by a female slave who, we are told, had a spirit that enabled her to tell fortunes, to foresee the future. And though we as Westerners try to ignore it, we live in a spiritual world. What we see and experience around us day by day isn't all there is to this world. We live in a world where Satan is relentless in trying to influence our thoughts, our minds, turning them to his way of thinking. The spirit in this woman controls what she sees, what she says, what she does. And we're told that she follows Paul and his companions around shouting, that Paul and his companions are servants of the Most High God who are telling us the way to be saved. Her shouting, no doubt, attracts attention not only to herself, but also to those who are around her. We're told she continues to follow Paul and shout out this message for many days. And while on the surface what she says is true about Paul, to have it come from such a dubious source as a spirit-filled fortune-telling woman, is hardly the way that Paul would want to preach the good news. To have this sort of endorsement coming from a person of such dubious background would confuse people and even have them associate in some way Paul and his message with the practice of fortune-telling. We know that Satan is the master of deceit, uses the truth to confuse us, beguile us into believing falsehoods and here he's cleverly manipulating the woman to tell the truth but at the same time to make a mockery of it. Now I don't know about you but if someone shadowed me and shouted at the top of their voice they'd be lucky to last an hour. My patience is not as great as Paul's. His tolerance with her behaviour finally ceases 
Because we read that Paul became annoyed and in the name of Jesus commanded the spirit to come out of the woman and it immediately left her. We're not told very much about what happens to her in the future. We don't know whether she became a believer or not. But what we do know is that the power of Jesus removed the spirit from her. Well, Paul's act of removing the woman's spirit had an immediate effect. The owners of the slave girl realised that their means of income had suddenly been removed. So they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Being seized in a public street, dragged into the marketplace for all to see, was a very intimidating, confronting, threatening, humiliating and dangerous action. However, the owners of the slave girl had a problem. They couldn't simply argue that their means of income had been removed because that wouldn't cut it with the magistrates. So they had to devise what we know as a plan B. They needed a good reason for their actions to convince the magistrates to take action. These men are Jews, they said. Now, Jews were not only generally hated and despised outside their own country, but their customs and beliefs were really removed from what the people of Philippi would have considered acceptable. Jews had recently been driven out of Rome for causing an uproar, so it wasn't much of a stretch to conclude that because Philippi was a Roman city, that its law enforcers would do likewise with the Jews. So, plan B, Paul and Silas were accused of advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. Pretty trumped up charge, isn't it? The owners of the slave girl reckoned that the local authorities would also want to keep the peace and not draw attention from Rome because the town was badly managed. They were looking after their backs. Those who were placed in authority over towns and cities under Roman rule were charged with not only the collection of taxes for the emperor, but for keeping the peace. And Roman authorities took ruthless action against any of their delegates if there was unrest and unruly behaviour in any of their towns under their control. At best, they'd be removed from their responsibilities and at worst, executed. Acting to quell any unrest and to appease the girl's owners and to set an example for other Jews to take note, they ordered Paul and Silas to be stripped and beaten. Now, sometimes we skip over those words because they're, they're, they're a bit hard to, uh, to comprehend, but let's not skip over it for this moment. Beating someone with a rod is a brutal action. Can you imagine being dragged before the authorities into the town square down the road here in front of a crowd of people on some trumped-up charge, tried, convicted and sentenced, all without a proper investigation, then stripped and beaten on your back, on your sides, on your arms, on your legs, with wooden rods, before being taken to prison. Luke's description leaves very little to the imagination. And Paul and Silas would have experienced not just pain, but severe physical trauma. Enter the jailer. Acts 16.23, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Imagine with me that you are the jailer. Put yourself in his sandals, so to speak. 
as David walks in in a pair of sandals. Yeah. Imagine with me, um, <coughs> the security of the prisoners was of the utmost concern to the magistrates. The, uh, the jailer was probably an ex-soldier, uh, paid by the authorities to look after the secure holding of prisoners, a bit like private enterprise um, on a contract. And they held the jailer personally accountable if anything went wrong. The inner room that's referred to, where Paul and Silas are put, it was probably a strongly built underground room in the jailer's house or, or a, uh, an addition to his house. It, wouldn't, it would have no window, therefore no light, no fresh air and no bathroom facilities. And inside this inner prisoner, the jailer placed Paul and Silas not just on a seat but in stocks. And the stocks that they used had a series of holes that got wider and wider. And the idea was to spread the legs of the individual as far as they could go to induce cramping. Now, you know what it's like to get a leg cramp, don't you? You can imagine this is inducing leg cramps. The jailer would then chain each wrist of the prisoners to the wall. Hardly a comfortable way to be confined, isn't it? Satisfied that he had done a good job of restraining the prisoners, ticking off all the boxes, the jailer went off to bed. He was obviously content. Paul and Silas had been beaten. They were bleeding and in great pain. Their limbs were stretched out in stocks in a stinking dark prison. But did they mope about and curse their bad luck? Did they hurl abuse at the jailer and the magistrates who put them there? Did they criticise the owners of the slave girl who fabricated charges against them? They did none of these. In the depths of the stinking prison, in utter darkness, with arms and legs secured and suffering from a severe beating, what they, what they did around midnight was pray. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where everything seems overwhelmingly stacked against you? Have you ever experienced what it's like to be utterly helpless at the mercy of someone who doesn't care about you? doesn't care about your needs. Have you ever felt so alone that all you feel is numbness and despair? That sort of utter helplessness will often bring people to their knees and whether they are believers or not, they pray. Now their prayers might be very specific about getting them out of the situation that they're in. They might be prayers asking for help. They might be, in some cases, asking forgiveness for something that they've done uh, to others. But Paul and Silas knew Jesus. And they would more than likely have offered thanks for their salvation and prayed for forgiveness for those who had wronged them. They also prayed out of joy, the joy they had as followers of Jesus. Some of you will know that my wife uh, had an accident uh, recently and broke her shoulder. And uh, during that adversity, uh, she was being tended to by paramedics who gave her a, a whistle. Now, those of you who work in the healthcare profession will know it's a, it's a uh, painkilling, um, orally taken um, painkiller. As she was being loaded into the ambulance to go to hospital uh, for care, 
um, under all the pain and all the adversity that she was suffering, she started to sing. So long, farewell, Alpidazain, adieu, adieu, adieu. Obviously, the effects of the painkillers was um, having some effect on her at the time. Uh, while she was having this wonderful um, experience and the uh, paramedics were looking aghast at what was going on, um, in her adversity, she was singing. Mind you, the painkillers were probably contributing to that. Back in the prison, Paul and Silas, their prayers now turned into songs. Songs that glorified God. Songs of praise to the risen Lord for the redemption of their souls. Thankful that they could suffer for the sake of the gospel. And those in the jail with them listened to their hymns that they sang. And no doubt they were astonished that these men could sing under such deplorable conditions. I can't imagine that anyone in that prison, not the prisoners, nor the jailer, nor the family, nor anyone who had any experience of prison life, had ever heard anything like the prayers and praises that Paul and Silas were singing at around midnight on that particular day. As they sang, suddenly it struck. An earthquake so violent that it shook the very foundation of the prison. You would expect that such a severe earthquake would completely destroy the building. But this was no ordinary earthquake. This was an earthquake whose power was specifically targeted at two things. To open the doors to all the cells holding prisoners and to loosen all the chains that held them. It was no ordinary earthquake. It was a demonstration of God's power. Earthquakes were not new to that area of Macedonia. They experienced earthquakes, but this one was different. It was very severe. It woke the jailer from his sleep. He went out to check on the damage. I think he was half expecting to find the place completely trashed. But what confronted him was unexpected and totally unnerving. As he looked around, he could see the earthquake had caused the entire security system of the jail to fail. Every restraint that he had personally put in place had failed. Earlier in the night, he'd checked and double-checked every restraint and every one of them had now been breached. From being in total control of his prisoners, he was confronted by something totally out of control, something much stronger than anything he'd ever encountered. What was going through his mind? This was serious stuff. What might happen? Open doors meant escape prisoners and Rome had only one treatment for jailers who lost their prisoners. And that was death. They wouldn't hear of excuses. They just wanted results. He realised that his fate was sealed. He'd be arrested. He'd be found guilty. He'd be executed. Should he wait around to find out his fate? Or should he take matters into his own hands? We read that anticipating the inevitable, he drew his sword ready to kill himself. He had no hope in the future. But listen, from the inmost prison room, a voice cried out, Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. What's going on? He must have wondered. The doors and all the, prison, of all the um, prisons have been opened, and, and, but nobody has escaped. 
He must have been totally confused. He, he wouldn't have been able to contemplate the idea that prisoners, when you have an open door, don't just run out. All his experience, all his knowledge, everything about, about the way he conducted his business was turned upside down. Nothing made sense. He had no answers for what was happening. But he in some way, shape or form, connected what was happening with Paul and Silas. Because we read that when he called for lights, rushed into Paul and Silas' cell, he brought them out and fell trembling before them. The strong, confident, experienced and super effective jailer was experiencing something that was beyond his capacity to resolve. In utter desperation, he was seeking help. The jailer received not only a physical shock, but a spiritual and emotional shock to his conscience. He was brought to the point where the very foundation of his life, everything he relied upon, like those of the prison he guarded, was shaken to their very foundations by God's earthquake. What must I do to be saved? He asked Paul and Silas. What must I do? Was he simply wanting to be saved from execution? What did he see as his most pressing need? How much did he know about Jesus? If anything, about Jesus' saving grace. Whatever it was that he was asking, Paul gave him the answer that was designed to meet his eternal need, not just his immediate need. At the lowest point in his life, the jailer realised that he didn't have all the answers. He realised that there were powers greater than what he could imagine. And he knew that somehow Paul was the one he needed to appeal to for the answer. What a dramatic reversal of roles. The jailer was now asking the prisoner what he must do to be saved. From being the one with the answers to being the one seeking the answers, his heart was open to hear the good news. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, was Paul's response. The jailer was seeking salvation and the answer Paul and Silas gave was clear, simple and direct. We read that the jailer believed and in that moment became a new man. His life was transformed. His first act was an act of contrition to wash and tend the wounds of the prisoners that he cruelly treated. Even though he had treated them in that way, their response wasn't anger, but their response was the good news of Jesus and of God's great plan of salvation, not only for the world, but for the jailer. In essence, the jailer didn't have to do anything because Jesus did it all for him by dying on the cross. For salvation is a gift from God by his grace and grace alone. To receive salvation is to believe on the Lord. You know, it's amazing that even a prison guard who didn't know about the way of salvation a few hours beforehand could be saved from his sins the very night he first learned about Jesus. If we read verse 32, it tells us that Paul and Silas then spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the others in his house. Now, what do you think they would have said? They would have said that salvation is by faith 
in the Lord Jesus, to trust in him as the only way to be assured of eternal life. We can be certain that the jailer received Jesus as his saviour, for he wasted no time in being baptised into the faith. We are told that he is filled with joy because he had come to know the Lord and so did his household. What a joyful meal they must have had together. The jailer, his household, his houseguests, the prisoners, Paul and Silas. And all this was happening while it was still night. Because we read in the morning, word comes from the magistrates. They have a, they've had a rethink about Paul and Silas's incarceration. And, and they sent their officers to the jail and said, just release these men. A blunt message, no apology, no remorse for wrongdoing. They just want them out of town. We read that Paul takes a fairly strong stance in response to this order. The whole episode of his and Silas's wrongful imprisonment shouldn't be dismissed so lightly. So he seeks a public apology from the magistrates and asks that they personally escort him out of town. They have wronged not only Paul and Silas, but have breached Roman protocols. So they find out, because by arresting, trying, punishing and imprisoning a Roman citizen, what they did was unlawful. So he takes them to task to hold them accountable for their actions. But he also does it to protect the fledgling church in, in, in Philippi from further harassment. The magistrates, alarmed at their unlawful actions and their precarious position, come to appease Paul and escort him out of town. But Paul is more interested in looking out for others, so he's in no hurry to leave Philippi. So he goes from the prison to Lydia's house to encourage them in their faith. You see, God will and does use people from whatever background to fulfil his plan for the good news of Jesus to be preached no matter what manner of interference will get in the way. The owners of the spirit-possessed woman initiated the action that brought Paul to the magistrates. The magistrates beat Paul and Silas with rods, threw them into prison so they could meet the jailer. These men, who had caused so much grief to Paul and Silas, were instruments of God in that whole process to bring the jailer and Paul and Silas together to know Jesus. Life will always throw obstacles in the way of the gospel. We know that and we've, we've been reminded of that today. So rather than seeing them as obstacles, shouldn't we, like Paul, seize the moment as an opportunity to preach the good news? Because when things are at their lowest, we're forced to rely upon God. And when we do, his power breaks through our weakness and our uncertainty to achieve his purpose. Because our weakness demonstrates God's power. Some people come to Christ as soon as they hear the gospel and it's a miracle of the moment. Whereas others resist the decision for decades until one day they realise the need for Christ and sometimes it's precipitated by a crisis or a tragedy that brings them to that point and other times it's as though their eyes have suddenly been opened. So if you know someone who is at that point in their lives and you are a Christian they may be ready to ask that question of you. What must I do to be saved? I would like to encourage you to answer that question for them in the words of Paul. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
And then you can explain the gospel to them. And you don't need to wait for an earthquake to do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the clarity of it, the, uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that salvation comes through trust in him. We pray that you would write that in our hearts so that we may be able to not only remember it for ourselves, but to pass it on to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.